if you'd find your seats and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Again, that's Philippians chapter 2. We'll be starting in verse 1. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility. Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father, God, I pray this morning as we start to walk through this text this, uh, on this topic of unity, Lord, that you would show us, reveal to us, Lord, humble us in seeing the importance of being one body, a, a local church, Lord, that, that is united in the faith with many diverse parts, Lord, with many diverse gifts and uh, upbringings, different ages, Lord, different diversities, Lord, that come together as one body, Lord. God, I pray that we would be a church with one mind, one love. Encouraged, Lord, by your Son and what he did for us on the cross. By the love of you sending your Son, Lord. By the Spirit that we have fellowship in, Lord, as you live within each one of us, God. I pray this morning, Lord, that that we would reflect on these things and the importance of, of unity within the church, Lord. That we would strive, Lord, side by side for the faith, together, unified, as one body. I pray this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're uh, continuing our sermon series as we uh, walk verse by verse through the book of Philippians. Today, we find ourselves in uh, chapter 2, starting uh, the second chapter in the book of Philippians, where Paul is going to spend a considerable amount of time uh, on the topic of unity within the church, which is a topic that, that is obviously dear to the heart of Paul. In fact, if you would, just look at verse 2. It says this in verse 2. This is what Paul writes. He, he tells the church, complete my joy. Complete my joy. In other words, make me joy-filled by being of the same mind, having the same love, being a full accord and of one mind. Paul really had a heart for unity within the church. Unity was dear to Paul's heart. In fact, almost every single Pauline epistle, as I thought through it, almost every single Pauline epistle, in fact, I can't think of one that doesn't deal with unity at some level, in fact, in a lot of ways, Paul was in prison because of his, his desire to see the church unified. He, he went to Jerusalem. He was on his way to Jerusalem taking money, gifts, donations from the Gentile churches to the, the church at Jerusalem, mostly a Jewish church. And I think one of his greatest motivations was to see the church unified, even though he knew he would be arrested getting there in Jerusalem. Paul was concerned about the unity of the church and in Philippians 2, 
Paul writes one of the the clearest uh, passages, one of the clearest teachings on the topic of unity. In fact, John MacArthur writes this, Philippians 2, 1 through 4 is perhaps the most concise and practical teaching about unity in the entire New Testament. Therefore, needless to say, uh, chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 4 is an extremely important passage for the life of the church. So let's start by looking at the very first word of Philippians 2, verse 1, which is the word, so. Uh, we're obviously going to be taking our time through this passage. So, right, this word is important because it connects Paul's thought to his previous thought. He's connecting the end of chapter 1 uh, to the beginning of chapter 2. Therefore, to, to understand our passage this morning, we really need to do a quick review of the last two sermons in the last two weeks. So if you would, turn to Philippians 1, verse 27. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Again, uh, we said that this is the first imperative in uh, the book of Philippians, and, and the most important, this is uh, Paul's words, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Again, the first imperative and the most important because it governs everything Paul's about to say in the book of Philippians. It's like the, the thesis statement of the entire book of Philippians. We are to let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And Paul uses a particular verb here in the Greek, which has a connotation of citizenship. We learned this again in the last two weeks. Paul, Paul is saying, be citizens of heaven. This is not our home. This, this world is not our home. We're passing through. We're sojourners. Therefore, we need to be citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel of Christ. We learned last week we are to do this by standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, we are to be united in the faith as citizens of heaven. And this is especially true, again, as we saw last week, as we see opposition and persecution coming our way. We need to be united, striving side by side as a church body. And there's something I want to say about Philippians. I, I preached through Ephesians, which... which the book of Ephesians really talks to the universal church a little bit more than the book of Philippians does. Paul is talking to a local church, the church at Philippi, in these words. He's talking to a local body. So in a lot of ways, uh, this passage that we're going through this morning is talking to, to us as a local body, Country Oaks. It's not necessarily talking about the universal church, that the universal church needs to be unified. The, the church at Philippi, Paul is saying, needs to be unified, just like the church at, at Tehachapi, Country Oaks, here, needs to be unified as one body striving side by side for the faith. And, and I want you to keep that in mind because a lot of times we, we think of the church universal when we should be thinking of the church local. And this passage was written to a local church. And in chapter 2, Paul continues this thought uh, of stri striving side by side, being unified in one spirit and one mind. Uh, in fact, he picks up the idea of unity again, and he gives us three aspect of, aspects of true godly unity. Of true godly unity. In Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Paul gives us the motivation the motivation for our unity, 
He gives us the substance of our unity and the way to unity. So there's three points uh, in this passage, the motivation for our unity, the substance for, of our unity, and the way to unity. Now, I got a little carried away in my studies this week, meaning we're only going to cover the first point this morning, the motivation for our unity. Next week, we'll cover the next two points, the substance and the way to unity. But let's start by looking at the motivation for our unity again, our unity as the body here at Country Oaks. What is our motivation to be unified as a body? So again, Philippians 2, verse 1 says, so, or therefore, the same word that's translated therefore, so, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, in verse 1, Paul gives us five motivations for unity. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation, or that, that word could be translated fellowship in the spirit, affection, and sympathy. And he puts these motivations in what's called a conditional clause, or better yet, maybe just a if-then statement, right? Look at verse 1 again. He says, if, if there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 2 is the then, then complete my joy. These are if-then statements, and that's pretty clear in English, but, but in Greek, there's something that, that doesn't translate extremely well into English. Greek has a, a few different ways you can construct a conditional clause. In this case, Paul is using what's called a first-class conditional clause, which means it assumes the condition is true. In other words, it's assuming that the first part of the clause is true. It's something like this. If this is true, which it is, then do this. That's implied in how Paul constructs these conditional uh, statements. In other words, there's a forcefulness to this, this condition. In other words, you really can legitimately translate verse 1 with the word since instead of if. And since, uh, since this is true, do this, in other words. And, and that may be a better way of understanding what Paul is saying. So let's do that because I want you to feel the force Paul is using here. So verse 1, since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since... There is participation in the spirit since there is affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's the then. So again, Paul is assuming these motivations are true for, for all Christians, for, for those within the church that are truly saved. So that's my first observation I want to make in, in verse 1. Now here's a second observation, and I'm going to spend some time on this one. Paul uses the Trinity as the foundation to the church's unity. Paul is using the Trinity as the foundation to the church's unity. Let me show you what I mean. Again, look at the, the first three motivations Paul gives the church at Philippi for, for their unity, for, for our unity. He says this, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation, or again, that word could be fellowship, fellowship in the Spirit. Now, the Son and the Holy Spirit are clearly seen. Encouragement in, in Christ, that's the Son. Fellowship in the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. Those are clearly seen, but, but I think 
when Paul writes comfort from love, I think he's referring to the Father's love. Father's love. Now, this is somewhat debated as I was going through different commentaries, but I'm actually pretty confident about this. And let me show you why. If you would, turn to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. We're going to be jumping around the New Testament a lot this morning, and I encourage you to actually turn there. I'll give you time to get there because I want you to see uh, each different passage. So if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. I want you to listen to what Paul writes here. Verse 14, he says this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son, and the love of God, that's the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So in this passage, we clearly have the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. You have the grace of of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have the love of God, which is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. This is very similar to Philippians 2 verse 1, which says, any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit. Very similar. Now, I'm guessing that just like in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul had the Trinity in mind when he writes Philippians 2, verse 1. Again, encouragement in Christ, love of the Father, and fellowship in the Spirit. Now, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4. is a, another passage about unity within the church. In fact, you really see diversity and unity within the church in this passage. And let me show you what I mean. Verse 4, it says this, Now there are varieties of gifts. That's diversity. Within a church body, there are varieties of giftings that God has given each individual Christian. There are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, unity. And there are varieties of services, service, diversity, but the same Lord, it's unity. And there are varieties of activities, diversity, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone, unity. Now, just as a side note, in the New Testament, typically holy is the divine title typically given to the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Lord is the divine title typically given to the Son. Jesus is called Lord more than anything else, or it's the title Lord more than anything else. And God is the divine title typically given to the Father. Therefore, again, Paul uses the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in reference to the church's unity. We are to be diverse, diverse in gifts, services, and activities unified in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Turn to Ephesians now, chapter 4, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. This uh, passage or this verse starts in the same way the uh, 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 starts with the word therefore or so. I therefore, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, and listen to this, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, does, does that sound familiar? It's, it, it sounds uh, very close to the, the command that governs all of the book of Philippians. Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's the same sort of command. In fact, that one imperative in Ephesians governs the second half of the book of Ephesians. Of Ephesians. Very similar. And this, and this shouldn't surprise us because uh, both these epistles, Ephesians and uh, Philippians, are called uh, prison epistles because they were written around the same time when Paul was in prison in Rome. So he probably had the same thoughts going through his head as he wrote both of these letters. In fact, you see very similarities uh, in these books. But again, Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1 says this, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity. Paul goes from living a life worthy of the calling or the gospel straight to unity. That is very similar to the book of Philippians. But look what he says in verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to you, your call, and one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Again, in verses 3 through 5, we see one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit. We see one Lord, that's Jesus, and one God and Father of all. We see the Trinity. Therefore, Paul is using the Trinity as the foundation to the church's unity. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. And this really just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, think about the Trinity for a second. What is the Trinity? It's one God. God is one, unity, three persons, diversity. The Trinity is unified diversity. Now think about the church. What is the church? It's unified diversity, or at least it should be. Country Oaks is, is one body, unity, many members, diversity. We are diverse in our personalities, in our ages, in our ethnicities, in our spiritual gifts, in our services, in our activities. We are even diverse at this point in our languages. We have a Spanish ministry that's meeting right now. That's why we've seen a, a song in, in Spanish once a month. We're, we're even diverse in our languages, yet we are one church body united in the faith. In fact, look at verse 5. Ephesians 4, verse 5. It says, one Lord and one faith. I mean, which faith do you think Paul is talking about there? The faith. <laughs> the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's Jude 3. They pointed out last week, uh, the faith is the truth, the convictions, and the, the doctrines revealed in the New Testament that unifies us as a church. 
Again, look at verse 5. It says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, why baptism? I just kind of thought about this this week and was reflecting back on my study of Ephesians. Why, why one baptism? I believe this is water baptism. I, I think Paul refers to being baptized spiritually into a body earlier in this passage when he says we're one body. So I think this is water baptism. And I was wondering, what does water baptism have to do with unity, the Trinity, and faith? And again, I was thinking about this and meditating on it, then it just kind of hit me. The Great Commission. Just listen to the Great Commission. This is Matthew 8, or 28, verse 18. And, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven has, and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. That's singular, one name. Singular in Greek. The name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Once again, you see the Trinity as, as, as foundational to our unity as a church. We were all baptized, water baptism, we were baptized in one name, that's unity. One name, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In fact, when we do baptism, water baptism, that's like the one thing I want to make sure people say. That I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit brings unity now with all that in mind turn back to philippians chapter 2 philippians chapter 2 verse 1 verse 1 says this so if again this is assumed to be true paul's assuming this is true for all christians so if if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, verse 2 says this, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Now, in light of all of Paul's other writings, I am confident that Paul had the Trinity in mind when he writes, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, that's the Son, any comfort from love, the Father's love, any participation or fellowship in the Spirit. You have the Son's encouragement, you have the Father's comfort that comes from the Father's love, and you have the Holy Spirit's fellowship or participation in the Spirit. Now, what I want to do is look at each one of these statements and, and just look at why Paul is using these as the motivation for our unity as a body. So let's start with the first one. If there's any encouragement in Christ... Any encouragement in Christ. Now, encouragement in Greek is paraklesis, paraklesis. Uh, you hear that word para, right? The root meaning of this is come alongside or towards someone, and that's where you get that word para, uh, parallel. Uh, parable is a, a story that comes alongside a real-life uh, lesson that you're teaching. So para means come alongside, paraklesis, come alongside to comfort, console, or exhort bring encouragement come alongside one someone to, to comfort them this word's actually used in luke 2 verse 25 where jesus is called the paraclesis of israel the paraclesis of israel or the consolation of israel in the esv or or maybe better the comforter of israel of god's people jesus came as the messiah to israel as their consolation or their comforter Again, 
word has this idea of someone coming alongside or towards someone to help, to be their advocate, to be their comforter, to, to be their encouragement. And isn't that exactly what Jesus did for us? I mean, Paul's about to make this very clear. We're, we're about to celebrate Jesus doing this for us. Within a couple of verses, Paul says this. This is the near context of our passage this morning. Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, he came alongside us. He, he walked with us as humanity. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in so doing, he bore the wrath in our place so that we would be safe. He came alongside us in our weakness, in our distress, in our sin-filled state. He did what we couldn't do. He, he bridged the gap between us and God. And therefore, it's through Jesus and him alone that we are saved and truly have comfort. Let me just say this. If you haven't put your faith in Christ, you should have absolutely no comfort at all. God's wrath is coming towards you. And every day you get closer to it. It's only through Christ and, and faith in him that we find comfort, that we find salvation, that we find peace and a relationship with the Lord, what he did in this life and death on the cross and his resurrection. Put your faith in him. Jesus is our comforter. Therefore, Paul says... If there is any encouragement or comfort in Christ, in verse 2, he says this, then complete my joy by being of the same mind. That's our motivation for unity. Which leads to Paul's second motivation. If there is any comfort from love. Now the word comfort here is actually very similar uh, to the word translated encouragement, encouragement uh, in Christ. Uh, the word comfort here is para, there's that root word again, para uh, muthion, para muthion. Uh, it's used only here in the New Testament, but means, again, to come alongside, that's where we get para, or towards, come alongside or towards with tenderness, with tenderness to encourage or to comfort. Again, very similar word. Uh, if there is any comfort, in other words, or any encouragement from love, now, I think Paul, again, is talking about the love of the Father. And, and let me expand on this a little bit more, why I'm so confident about this. Uh, let me start with a question. Whose love sent Jesus to us in the first place? John 3.16. For God. It's the Father. How do I know the Father? It's the Father? Because keep going. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In verse 17, it says this, For God, again, that's the Father, did not send his Son, that's how we know it's the Father, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him, through Jesus. 1 John 4, 9 says this, 
in this the love of God. This is the Father. The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son. That's how we know it's the Father. Sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The Bible is actually just very consistent about this. It was was out of the Father's love that he, the Father, sent his son into the world to die for our sins. Even Jesus makes this very clear in his ministry. He makes it very clear he was sent by the Father. John 6, 38 says this, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Well, who's the him? The Father. John 4, 34 says this, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him, that's the Father, who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 17, verse 4, uh, Jesus is actually praying to the Father, and he says this, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's out of the Father's love that Jesus was sent. In fact, listen to Philippians 2.8. Again, this is the near context. This is just a couple of verses away from where we're at today. Philippians 2.8 says this, And being found in human form, that's the Son, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Well, here's my question. Obedient to whom? The Father. It was the Father's love that sent the Son. And, and the Bible is just absolutely consistent. Over and over and over again, we see the Father, out of his love, sent his Son to be with us, to die for us, and to be raised on the third day. So here's my question. How much comfort should that bring you? Remember, Paul says, if there's any comfort from love, how much comfort should the Father's love bring? I think an amazing amount of comfort. In fact, not just comfort, but assurance, confidence, and joy. Let me show you what I mean. If you would, turn to Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, verse 29. I go to this passage a lot, but it's a passage that brings me a ton of comfort. And so I like to preach on it. And since I'm the one up here preaching, I go to it a lot. Romans 8, verse 29. In fact, you could just go through the whole chapter of Romans 8 and you'll see the Father's love everywhere. Let me just give you a small portion of it. Verse 29 says this, For those whom he, and that's the Father, that's the Father. How do I know? Well, let's keep going. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's how we know it's the Father in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God, that's the Father, if God is for us, who can be against us? He, again, the Father, he whom did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. In other words, if God's love 
sent his son to die for us on the cross, I mean, then what should we fear? Nothing. I mean, the logic is sound. If God, this is the father, didn't withhold his beloved son, then what would he withhold from us? Nothing. Turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We'll start at verse 4. Galatians 4, 4 says this. But when the fullness of time had come, God, this is the Father. How do I know it's the Father? Because God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who, who were under the law, so that, this is why God did it, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Did you hear that? One of the reasons God sent his son was so that we would be adopted into his family as sons. In other words, out of God's love, he sent Jesus so that we might become his adopted sons and daughters. Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. I absolutely love my children. And I could say I, I would do anything for them. Yet my love fails in comparison to the perfect love of God, the Father. And that's how God describes himself to us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Again, another very familiar verse to us. Passage. Verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father. That's how I know it's the Father. It says it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> you know, I preached through Ephesians a few years ago, and, and believe it or not, if you're new, you might not believe this, but when I got to verse 3, I, I had absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> I was speechless. God the Father has, that's, that's past tense. In fact, it's the aorist tense, meaning it's something that's been completed. It's past tense, meaning we don't earn it. This has already happened. If you're saved, if you're a Christian, if you've been adopted into the, the, the family of God, this has already happened. You don't have to get your act together before, before God will bless you, in other words. 
God the Father out of his love and grace, meaning a free gift. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen, I don't even know how to explain that. I'm speechless. I mean, what is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? It's beyond comprehension. Yet it was given to us out of the Father's love. Out of His grace. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that We should be holy and blameless before him in love. The father's love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. Just think about that sentence. In love. The father's love. In love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And he did this before we could do anything. Before the foundation of the world. He loved us, in other words, before we could earn his love. It's a love that was freely given out of the grace of God. Let me ask this question again. Is there any comfort in God's love? The answer is yes. <laughs> of course there is. In fact, remember the word translated comfort has this idea of tenderness, of coming alongside someone in tenderness. And I couldn't help but just thinking of a loving father. I could just picture an earthly father out of his love and compassion coming alongside his son or daughter, offering just tender love and comfort. And that's the picture Paul is painting in Philippians chapter 2. So if you would, turn back to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Again, verse 1. So, if, this is assumed to be true, If there is any encouragement in Christ, of course there is. If if there is any comfort from love. Now, let me address a question uh, before we move on, because because I think it's an important question. It's a question I was asking myself all all week as I was studying this. Why why doesn't Paul name the Father in the second statement? The question really bothered me this week, because I'm confident that Paul is talking about the Father's love, but at the same time, I'm very careful. I do not want to read anything into the text that's not there. So it bothered me. Why didn't Paul put the Father's name in there? Why didn't he write something like, any comfort from the Father's love? Well, here's my answer. And I want to just be clear. This is just a guess. This is a guess. I'm guessing, and it's an educated guess because I'm guessing from Paul's other writing. I'm guessing 
that Paul taught about the Father's love so much to the church at Philippi and anywhere he taught that he knew all he had to say was the word love and they would know exactly what he was talking about. Especially in the context of the Son and the Spirit. He knew that the church would know exactly what love he was talking about, the Father's love, because listen, there is no other love worthy to be mentioned alongside the encouragement of the Son and the fellowship of the Spirit. Only the Father's love fits. It was out of His love that He sent His Son to die on the cross so that that we could be saved, adopted into His family, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul says, if there is any comfort from love. So we have the Son and the Father, and finally we have the Holy Spirit. If there is any participation in the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit. Participation comes from the Greek word, word koinonia, which is most familiar to a lot of us. It means fellowship, partnership, or participation is a good translation. Any fellowship in the Spirit would be a good translation. And again, Paul's assuming the answer is yes. Of course, if you're saved, of course we have fellowship in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Here's why. We all have the same Holy Spirit living within us. We are the temple of God. Therefore, we are united together as one body by the fellowship of the Spirit. In fact, listen to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. It says this, For for in one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were made to drink of one Spirit. We are no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, but instead we are one body united in the fellowship of the Spirit. Now when you put this all together, in Philippians 2 verse 1, you have the Son, the Father, and the Spirit. But really you have uh, more than that because you also have the Gospel. The Son who came alongside us to comfort us by redeeming us, you have the Father who sent the Son out of His love. And finally, you have the, the fellowship of the Spirit who baptized us into one body. This is the gospel. It should be our greatest motivation. Remember the, the thesis statement of Philippians. The, the imperative that governs the entire book. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ gospel of Christ is our motivation to love one another, to be united together in the faith, to have the same mind and unity. And therefore, Paul keeps going. He goes from the, the gospel and he moves to the effects of the gospel. And he does this by connecting two words together. Look at the very end of verse one. He, he ends verse one by saying this, if there is any affection and sympathy. Any affection and sympathy. Listen, if you're truly saved through the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through the gospel, and the Bible is just so clear about this, your life is changed. You are a new person. 
You are a new man with new affections and sympathies. There will be fruit in your life. In fact, these these two words are purposely connected with with the one word and, connecting these two words, or Kai in Greek. It's, It's affections, right? Affections has to do with our inward emotions. When you are saved, you have new desires and emotions towards God and his people. Sympathy has to do with our outward compassion. It's our inward affections targeted towards something outwardly, and that produces action. In other words, it's the root and the fruit. The root is our our new affections. The, The fruit is our sympathy and compassions that produce action. When you put these words together, Paul is talking about our new nature in Christ. J.A. Mortier writes this. By using these two words, Paul has, in fact, turned to the subjective side of salvation. The person saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is made by them into a new creature with a new heart and new sensitivities. This, too, spurs them on to a new life and new relationships with new possibilities of identifying deeply with each other. Another motive and spring of unity. Therefore, in verse 1, Paul gives us the motives for our unity. Another way of putting it is that Paul gives us the why. Why we should be unified. Remember, he's talking to a local church body. Why should we, Country Oaks, be unified as a body? Well, he gives us five reasons. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, that's the love of the Father, If there's any participation or fellowship in the spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, if your life has truly been changed by the gospel, then, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Unified. Listen, this is so important to understand. If you're causing division within the church, If you're causing discord or or fractions, if you are being divisive by not putting others before yourself, or this may be controversial, but listen, if you're not pursuing unity by getting involved in the church, by finding ways to serve and use your spiritual gifts for one another, according to Paul in this passage, you are dishonoring Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And not only that, you are not living a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. We are called to unity. One body, many members, many many parts. In fact, that's what we mean by membership here at Country Oaks. I don't know what other churches mean, but, but we mean the biblical word member biblical word, the biblical concept. We're one body, many members, meaning uh, some of you are toes, pinkies, but we're all one body. In fact, I've learned this really, this analogy really well, because there's been times I'm up here preaching and, and my foot cramps. And I'm telling you, it is hard to keep my thought <laughs> going when my foot is cramping up. <laughs> We need every single part. 
We need every single part engaged in the body to be effective. Unified in the faith. Now, next week we're going to look at what that means. Because I think a lot of people have the wrong understanding and idea of unity. In fact, there's two words that I can think of, uh, biblical words that have been hijacked by a postmodern culture. The first one's love. It's been hijacked and redefined. And so you have to be very careful what you mean when you talk about love. But the other one's unity. That word's been hijacked by a postmodern culture and, and has been redefined to be something different when, what, than what the Bible means when it says unity. And we're going to talk about that next week. What is the substance of our unity as a, a body? But let me end today by saying something. And I hope this is encouraging to you. I became the lead pastor here at Country Oaks in 2019. Now let that settle in for a second. 2019 was the year before 2020. <laughs> I mean, talk about getting thrown in the deep end of the pool. Now, I'm not looking for sympathy at all because by God's grace, I survived. But thankfully, and a lot of pastors didn't have this, and I was just blessed. I had godly men on the elder board just sharing the load, walking with me every step of the way. So, so I, I don't need sympathy. The reason I bring this up is, it's just because one of the hardest things that happened in, in 2020 as a pastor just watching the year of COVID was simply the, the disunity, the divisiveness within the church and churches in our town and across the nation. Again, it was the hardest thing to just deal with and, and watch and be a part of. The, the vicious criticism and attacks from people against each other, against me and the elders, our church. I mean, people that, that didn't even go to our church. In fact, a lot of people that didn't go to church at all. And people on both sides of the issue, let me be clear on that. People upset with us because we opened up way too early. People upset with us because we didn't open up early enough. Emails from people telling us that we're going to kill everyone in the church. Emails from people saying we're not being faithful. All types of disunity, and it was really heartbreaking. It was the hardest thing, for sure, walking through COVID. But I want to tell you something, it, because by far, by far the most encouraging thing that happened during the time of COVID, hands down, and I say this all the time, without hesitation, the most encouraging thing, it's one of the most encouraging things I've had as a pastor, period, was the unity of this church. And I'm not just talking about the elders. I'm talking about the congregation, the members. And honestly, I don't know how to thank you guys for it. I know this last month was Pastor Appreciation Month, and, and you guys, so many letters and gifts and, and just so many encouraging things said, but I, I feel like one of the most blessed pastors ever, just pastoring this church. You don't know how encouraging, how, how much encouragement and joy it gave me as a pastor to see our church unified in such a divisive time. Not that we all agreed. <laughs> There's many disagreements. We weren't all on the same page in how we thought we should be acting, but the amazing thing is even though many of us did not agree, we were men and women that didn't let our disagreements destroy the church. The bride of Christ. Huge encouragement. And huge joy. 
And therefore, I bring this up because personally, I feel like at a small level, and I never like comparing myself to Paul, but I can't help myself just thinking what he was thinking. Just at a small level, I can understand what Paul is saying in verse 2 when he says this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Listen, divisiveness is just so ugly. So ugly. But unity, true, godly unity, models the, go- models the, the Trinity, honors the gospel, and produces joy. Let's pray. Dear Lord, our Father in heaven, God, I thank you for your love. love that sent your son I, I thank you for your son who redeemed us who walked with us alongside us I thank you for the spirit that has been given to each and one of us who have put their faith in your son Lord that we have a fellowship together one spirit living within us Lord God I pray as we look towards the future and see opposition and maybe even persecution, Lord, coming our way, that we would strive side by side, in one spirit, with one mind, standing firm, Lord, in the faith. Lord, as I think back in 2020 and the unity that we had, Lord, we weren't perfect, the elders weren't perfect in the decisions that we made, the the congregation wasn't perfect, Lord, but the unity we had supernatural it came from you it came from your spirit and you get all the glory we praise you Lord and we pray that we would have that same unity as we strive side by side together that we'd be bold in the faith that we proclaim the gospel boldly that we would live lives worthy of the gospel together as a church I pray this in your son's name Amen